everything on it, um, keeping the land in balance. Um, uh, you know, everything has a place and a purpose. And so at that time, probably everything we needed, we got off the land, you know, uh, for our homes, our clothing, our food, our medicine, tools, baskets, um, our ceremonial objects, jewelry, you know, everything we used probably came from the plants and animals, uh, trees, the birds, fish, water, you know, everything on the land. Um, we probably, uh, no cars, so we traveled and traded, you know, we did a lot of walking. <laughs> um, we would have permanent villages in our high mountain valleys and then would have temporary homes when we were out harvesting and gathering. And, and so we'd spend the summers probably uh, gathering everything we needed to survive and what we needed off the land and taking care of the land. And then the winters, because we're in the high mountains, um, we're probably spent around the fire telling stories and um, reaping the spoils from what we gathered all summer. Was acorn the main uh, staple in terms of making like tortillas from acorns? Yeah, yeah, uh, acorns were a staple, you know, anything you could make flour, you do acorn flour. So anything that you, you know, your stews, your soups, uh, gravies, uh, breads, would all come from acorns. And how were they leached? Because I know you can't just eat the, the, the ground flour. You, it has to be leached with lye? No, um, you just use water to leach it. That, they have a tannic acid in them that make them bitter um, to, to taste. And so you would leach it with water just to, and what we do is you, put a, a cloth or just in the sand even, put your ground acorn flour out and cover it with some fir boughs or cedar boughs and then just pour water over it and just keep pouring water over it, leaching it until the bitter taste was gone. Mm. And, uh, and then the berries were dried and stored for the winter, the meat was smoked and stored that way. Right. Yeah, nuts and berries and um, your jerky, yeah, and fish. Fish would be uh, smoked too or dried. So. And then how was that all transported? Because people didn't have horses, right? You, you, yeah. you, you carried everything and Mainly that's where baskets, you know, baskets were real important to us. We used them from the time you were born until you died. You know, we, we carried the babies on cradle boards and baskets. You used them for gathering, for um, willing, you know, for um, storage. You cooked in the baskets. Um, and then when people died, we would bury, we would bury in baskets. We had uh, basket burials. So you, we, you use baskets from time you were born till time you died. 
And it was also an art form and a craft. And you're known as being a, a basket weaver. Yes. Um, when you when you design a basket, do you usually use traditional designs, or are craftswomen free to create their own designs? Yeah, on my baskets, I usually use the traditional, the geometric designs that, um, you know, ones like my grandmother and great grandmother would use on their baskets. I would use this. I use um, my favorite is the flying geese, probably, and doing variations of the flying geese and the mountain symbols. Um, you you mentioned that my, the mountain mighty were mountain people. Was, was that around Lake Almanor, or where is a, a um, our mountain, well, I'm Mountain Maidu. Uh, the Maidu go clear from Honey Lake Valley to Sacramento, but they're divided up between the Mountain Maidu, the Foothill Maidu, and the Valley Maidu. And so our Mountain Maidu take in pretty much all of Plumas County. You know, in the west is Mount Lassen, and the south is um, uh, part way down the Feather River Canyon to Oroville, uh, south of Quincy, and then to the east is um, Sierra Valley and then Honey Lake Valley. To the north is um, Susanville area, Eagle Lake, and then you're back around to in the west, Mount Lassen, and we're pretty much in that the whole northern part of the Sierra Nevadas. How did uh, people get together? Because you needed to meet new people to get new spouses and to share information and to have fun. When were the coming together times? Yeah, um, well, we, we traveled by trails between the valleys because we lived in the high mountain valleys and you would just, we had trails you've got and you can still see some of the traditional trails, parts of them that went from one valley to the next valley, and you'd go up and over the mountains, um, just walking and and carrying everything you needed, and and you know you would have your your gatherings. You know you would have the deer dance in the fall and the bear dance in the spring, and uh, have big times where people would get together and visit. But um, in your villages, it was just your small extended families in each village. And so you would travel and we didn't live in, in towns, you know, we lived in little villages just all over the land. And so when you would at night, these little mountain meadows, you would see fires all the way around the meadows and, and stuff where people lived. And what were the homes constructed of? Um, the winter homes um, uh, um, were mainly partly underground. They were round. Uh, you would dig down a couple feet. You would have a bench of dirt around, and then you would have plank, wood plank walls with a cone-shaped top, uh, a shingle-type top on it with planks, uh, mainly cedar cedar bark on the roofs um, and they would have a hole in the center because you would have a fire for cooking and heat in the winter time 
in the summertime, we had what we called our, our bark houses that were just, they were teepee shaped and they were just of cedar bark, um, leaned up on the sides and they didn't have a fire in them. They were for in the summertime, mainly for storage when you were out gathering. They were a temporary type home. You could sleep in it if it was raining, but mainly to store stuff in. Um, you would cook and have your fire outside. And do you know all this because you experienced it as a child or how, how, are you, how do you know the um, traditions? Well, we have an oral history. So everything is passed down through the families. And, and when you talk with the other people, you know, is, well, we did it this way. Well, we did it this way. It's just how your family did things that um, is passed down and you just keep doing the thing, same things. Um, we still, you know, as demonstrations, put up bark houses in the, the subterranean homes, but, um, we live in houses now. <laughs> I live in a trailer, but. Um. Well, so how much did you, because there was a period of time when the federal government put enormous pressure that indigenous people should be assimilated and kids were ripped away and taken to boarding schools and not allowed to speak mm -hmm. their language. So I, I'm wondering how, how free your grandparents were to teach you yeah um well my grandmother went to boarding school and i have pictures that i i show of her before she went to boarding school and during the boarding school and after and it's such a, a change of how um you know the government policies over the years of um, assimilation and relocation and the boarding schools and termination and just all the they've always tried to to rip the indians away from their culture and away from their land but they haven't been able to do it because we're tied to that land you know we're it's a part of us and but uh, my grandmother the picture that I have of her before she went to boarding school, um, she was about 14. Then she had her baskets because she made beautiful baskets, her beadwork. You know, she had long hair, long um, buckskin type dress on. Um, at boarding school, the girls, she went to boarding school in Arizona because they didn't send you to one close to your home. <laughs> and, and so, the girls all wore these long dresses that were looked the same or same color. Their hair was all in like a Hopi or Zuni style put up. All the girls, regardless of what type Indian they were, were they all wore their hair the same, wore the same dresses. And, um, and then the picture I have after she came home, she's in this real frilly white, um, white man's dress, you know, it was a white dress and it had lace on it and a big fancy bonnet and her hair and in a dressed in a white person's hairdo. And she, after she came back from boarding school, she never made baskets again. You know, she did beautiful uh, quilt, quilting, uh, crochet work. She'd make these big crochet things that would go on the back of the couches and the chairs and 
um, lace um, tablecloths and uh, bedspreads and stuff that were all crocheted and um, she made quilts for all her grandkids and great grandkids and stuff and and sold but she never did the baskets again and she was fluent in Maidu and speaking the Maidu language but she never really taught her family to be fluent her her kids would know the words you know I'd sit and I'd listen to her talking with the other older ladies in Maidu but I could never pick it up because she she would tell us you know she didn't want us to learn that uh, that um, it wasn't necessary for us to know the Maidu language. When was she born around what year? Uh, she was born in 1885 here in Indian Valley. Her mother they figured was born she was born in Big Meadows where Lake Almanor is now. Uh, was born in around 1835 mm. and, and my grandmother was the youngest of uh, 16 children so she was the youngest one. So how did you learn to make baskets and how did you learn about the history the oral history? Yeah well I didn't I a lot of the oral history I learned from my grandmother because after my grandmother grandfather passed away she lived with our family because it wasn't unusual for three generations to be together and and she would live with us and when I was little she'd watch the kids you know that was the elders one of their things was watch the grandkids and great-grandkids and 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 teach down and and so I never learned the basketry from her because she wasn't doing it at that time. Um, she, um, I learned the basketry in the 1980s. I took classes from Lily Baker, who was one of our last mass master basket weavers. Um, and she was passing it on and she told us um, that we're in their class, you know, that if she taught us, we had to pass it on. And so that's why I teach basket classes is because we were taught, you know, you, you pass it on. So. In, in, in the traditional villages, um, how, how were, were the elders automatically the leaders and decision makers or how, how, was, how were decisions made? Okay, well, we did have um, headmen in our village you know what we didn't call him a chief they were our head man uh, usually the head of your family since the villages were extended families was your head man and then you had your shaman your medicine men that would be treating for any uh illnesses and, and were there and were there women women in leadership or shamanic or healing roles or were they all men I believe in uh, in our area they were all men. Um, women were more, you know, busy with the learning to survival, you know, with the gathering and the uh, cooking and the taking Close care making. of the family and. Um. Uh, the 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 shamans that I know about treat with herbs and medicinal plants they 
they know the spirit of the plant and sometimes they journey to the underworld and you know retrieve a, a lost part of the spirit that's been lost to trauma or something did they do that kind of visionary work as well as plant work yes yes they did um and our area is our sacred lake where the medicine men go to get their powers, you know, from up on the mountain on the mountaintop. And, um, and so even uh, medicine men from surrounding areas would come there to get their powers. And, you know, we've had stories passed down about medicine men's powers and the forms that they can take and you know of different animals of big green lizard like things that run through the forests and and different things like that or the, or the little people you know we have our stories and our legends that we hand down and and they they just explain whatever you have questions of about something to do with the medicine men and stuff you know you can explain it with a story people learn best that way it makes sense so the if the shaman was doing his work he might take the form of the big green lizard even though there was nothing like that naturally occurring yeah and, and it would be their power you know you would talk about um just like there were good medicine men there were there were bad ones too and so some had good power some had bad power and sometimes they would clash and they would fight each other for this person's soul or something you know or to help them and and so you know and it's just we don't question it it's just the way that it's been <laughs> right were were the different tribes fairly peaceful or sometime was was there fighting between yeah well mountain maidu you know we were all fairly peaceful people we let other tribes especially when the white people started coming into the area the europeans um come into our area to get away from from them you know because we were up in the mountains um they had contact a lot sooner in the valleys than we did or in towards nevada and so we let them come into our area, you know, and took them in. Uh, the only ones we had ever had problems with the Mountain Maidu were the male creeks. And that was because they would attack and steal our women. And, and um, but, you know, there wasn't like a big rivalry between the tribes. I, I was just thinking that the shamans yeah. might be used like against the Mill Creek people if they were coming in to protect yeah. them. Um, why do you think, oh, you so you're thinking that women didn't do these kind of activities because they were too busy just with maintaining with their families, yeah. With their their basic living conditions. Were, were men involved in parenting as well as women? I mean, did they hold the babies and teach the children and that kind of thing? Um, yeah, as, as much as the women were, most of the teaching comes from your elders, you know, cause they were the ones that couldn't go out if they were getting too old to go out and harvest and gather or you know, the help around the home, that, that was their job to take care of the children and to teach them and to, 
um, keep them safe. <laughs> have because the tradition is oral, and I'm sure sacred. Has has anyone been tasked with writing it down so it doesn't get lost? Um, we've had people write down different, but it's usually the stories that we've gotten have been in families, you know, they tell what, what their family did because you don't know what other families do. They don't do things the same. And, and so they write down their family history instead of being oral, they'll write it down. And has that been done for your family? Um, not a whole lot, no. I'm thinking that's something you may need to take on. <laughs> Um, people know Ishi, and was he Maidu, the, the last of the people who were living close to the land? No, he was Yante, and he was more to the west of our Maidu. By uh, Orville. Uh, uh, right south of Mount Lassen, um, between Mount Lassen, Chico area, uh, Orville area in there, in the foothills there. Do you think their way of life was similar to the Maidu? Um, it was pretty similar, yes, especially in the, the type plants and the food and um, they were lower down. We're more up in the conifer trees where they were down lower in the oak trees more. With the acorns. Um, in, in your environmental work, Currently, when you're thinking about how to work with an area of land, you you make a point of communicating with the plants and the animals. And as someone who does intuitive work, I'm interested in how you tune in to what's right for the the, the creatures and the plants that live there. Yeah, well, I always say it's you just learn to listen to the land. You know, you talk to it and you listen to it and find out what it needs. Um, when we talk about the TEK, the traditional ecological knowledge, um, there's a spirituality kind of a mental awareness that you have of everything around you. You know, how we think that all the plants and the animals and the trees and fish and birds, you know, even the water and fire and everything, they're all our relatives. And we take care of them the way we do our own family members. And then they take care of us. They give us everything we need. Um, and it's it's just tuning in, you know, it's that human contact and that human element tuning in to, to what they need and being able to communicate it to them. Um, you use the Maidu language a lot, uh, songs, um, prayers, um, ceremonies um, to connect with your relatives. And It seems like offerings are really important, like to leave tobacco or some kind of, you know, I'm taking this plant and I'm leaving this tobacco in appreciation and to express a reciprocal yeah. exchange. Yeah. It, it's that mutual respect, you know, you, you respect that plant or that animal, whatever you're being used, you always say thank you for it and leave something. Um, 
you know, even if it's a song or a prayer, you leave something. Um, and you never gather more than what you'd use. You know, you show that respect to the plant. You let it know when you're out gathering, when I'm gathering basket materials, I'll let the plants know that I need them, what they'll be used for, you know, what, um, that I need more. And then I'll go back in the next year and the next year and there'll be more there because you never take all of it. You never take everything. And then while you're gathering or harvesting, you're taking care of those plants. If they, if you're getting big leaf maple and you get what you want, then you do some lopping and cut up some other pieces and scatter them so that you would get those new shoots coming up the next year. Um, if you're doing well after you've gathered it, you would burn it and cut it down so that you have the new shoots because your new straight shoots are your best shoots for basketry and where they don't, wherever they fork, they're a weak spot when you go to, to split them down. And, and so you, you take care of those plants as you're going, you know, if you burn, if you cut, if you lop or prune, if you, you can gather seeds, you know, gathering seeds and then scatter seeds. Um, replant, what, however that plant needs to be taken care of or, you know, when you're gathering it for my basket materials or if we were doing it for medicine or food, you would do the same thing, but you show that respect to that plant or that animal that you're using. Some, some people find that, um, I think birds are especially, you know, like hawk is a messenger that gives a certain message. If you see it over and over or that kind of thing. Do, do you find that kind of symbolic communication with, say with birds? Yeah, you, you communicate with them like you would any uh, anybody else. And um, in our area, the flickers are real important to us because we use their feathers for our ceremonial regalia. You know, that they're important because we need them. And you, you let them know that you need them in that. That's part of what we call the TEK, you know, is, is that other element, you know, that interaction between you and the, your other relatives. Mm -hmm. what, what else might people offer besides tobacco or a prayer or a song? Um, just to thank you, <laughs> you know, just um, letting a plant or something know that you need it, that it's wanted. You know, it's that compassion kind of for, for them too. Whenever I pick flowers for my garden or fruit or whatever, I always say thank you to the plant. Maybe just in my mind, but I definitely always thank them. It just seems polite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's surprising. We found out, you know, going out on the land, taking our people out, it, just getting the people out there visiting the plants and the animals, you know, it, it brings them back and it makes more. It, it really, that interaction helps. Some people think that there are um, elemental spirits, plant devas, they call them. So they're like unseen spirits of the cabbage or the flicker or the pine tree or whatever, that, that's kind of the guardian and the template or the, the form of those different animals. Do you, do you think of it that way at all? Yeah, well, I don't see it as 
anything separate. It's just part of that. You know, that's their spirit. You know, everything has a spirit, and that's that's their spirit. And and you know, when we do have the old ones around us that you can call on for help or for wisdom if you need to have you have a problem and you need help with and stuff you can call on them to help you the old ones meaning the ones that have passed on from this life and gone on um they're there if you need them i know some in africa some tribes whenever they eat they pour a little libation on the ground in honor of the ancestors so that they always have respect is just right. part of their daily life and appreciation for the ancestors help mm -hmm. um in in terms of your environmental work um you were able to take control i don't know what the right word is humbug valley which is really casmem koyam near lake almanor over 2000 acres that the maidu summit consortium is it responsible for tell us about that okay um well our tribe because um we're mainly landless because of the hydro projects in our area especially um peachy and e went through bankruptcy in 2003 and under that bankruptcy they had to give up their excess lands um and so we had applied for some of those lands because we were able to under social justice you know show that they had taken over so much of our traditional lands for the hydro projects in our area um we're at the headwaters of the um, feather river watershed um our valleys all the water comes from here runs downhill through the dam at Oroville, but there's dams going down the Feather River Canyon. We have reservoirs, but we were in the Mountain Maidu area. We have four valleys that were taken over by um, Great Western Power Company in the early 1900s. Uh, there was Big Meadows where Lake Almanor is, Mountain Meadows where Walker Lake is, um, Butt Valley, where Butt Valley Reservoir is, and then Humbug Valley, the four valleys. And we documented when we went mm -hmm. after this land that they had taken over 110 Indian allotments. And these allotments were around 160 acres each. So we figured 17,000 acres. And this, those four valleys that had gone to the hydro projects. And, and so, we turned it into a social justice issue where we felt that they needed to give us some land back as just compensation for everything we had lost to the hydro projects. You know, with the dams going across the rivers, we lost the salmon, the snapping turtles, the eels, um, and not just them, but, you know, the, the fishing villages, the songs, the ceremonies that went with the gathering of those resources. Um, we lost all of that. That was part of our culture, you know, part of our heritage that was lost to these hydro projects. And so we were able to get back um, right around 3,000 acres altogether. And Tasman Koyom was, like you said, 2,324 acres of it. And it was the last valley that wasn't flooded. The other three were flooded. 
and they didn't do that. There were plans to dam it and flood it, and it never was done. And and so that land had been under the power company for over a hundred years. And so it's our last pristine valley. It has not been developed, has not had any um, kind of development on it. And so it was real important to our people to get that land back because what we want to do is take care of that land using our TEK, our traditional methods, and then be able to show people and use it as a showcase. It, we're going to run it as a tribal park, you know, and have groups and have people come in and be able to educate them of the respectful right way to take care of the land, how to keep the land in balance, you know, how to, how to take care of it the right and respectful way. So what, when did you take control? When, when, well, when we got, we got the deed to Humbug Valley in September, uh, 2019. And, and what, what have you been able to do so far and how do you get funding? Um, well, what, uh, the Maidu Summit Consortium is a nonprofit. We're a 501c3. So we're able to get grant money from foundations and different grantors. We're able to have donations, ask for donations for help um, or to get low interest loans um, to be able to finance what we want to do. Because our main goals are, are, you know, restoration and preservation of our land of our homeland. Our, our name, our Maidu Summit Consortium <laughs> kind of says it, you know, we started at the Maidu Summit in the early 2000s when the government right after 9-11 were coming, calling their Homeland Security Summits. And so we wanted to call our own summit and we called the Summit of all our Mountain Maidu people to protect our homelands. And for us, protection was protection of our sites, our sacred sites, our village sites, our burial sites, our uh, gathering sites, you know, all our sites. Uh, that's our homeland protection. And, and so our members of our consortium, we have two federally recognized tribes. We have two unfederally recognized tribes. We have two nonprofits. And then we have two just Native American associations as members. So we feel like we represent all our Mountain Maidu people because we represent, they're from different areas all over our Mountain Maidu territory. And that gives us power, you know, we feel like we're talking with a united voice when we go to meetings and, and deal with like government agencies like the Forest Service or BLM or Park Service or whoever we're dealing with before we had the summit, we'd go to meetings and they say, well, do all your Mountain Maidu people agree? And we'll say, well, our group does, but we have to go ask this group or this tribe, you know, we have to ask them and we'll get back to you. But if we take a, a resolution or some, a letter or something from the summit, we can say, yes, all our Mountain Maidu people agree to this, you know, and it gives us that, that power, that kind of being united and working together. But what was your... Your, excuse me, what was your role in founding it? And I think it doesn't work to ask politely and they say, oh, okay, we're gonna give you this whole humbug valley. Okay, you asked nicely. H how does one actually make those kind of changes? Okay, well, 
at the time this land became available, we were working on it. And I, I say, and we, I was a coordinator, a co-coordinator for the Maidu Culture and Development Group, which is one of the nonprofit organizations. And we were working on a stewardship project. Um, it was a pilot stewardship project that was awarded by Congress in 1998. And it was rewarded to the MCDG, the Maidu Culture and Development Group. And it was taking care of 2,100 acres of land using the TEK. And it was when they were just starting to do stewardship contracting, they, it was a pilot. And, and so um, we, it, 600 acres was around our sacred lake on top of the mountain in Lassen National Forest. And 1,500 acres was around uh, just north of Greenville here on the Plumas National Forest. And so it was 2004, we signed a 10-year stewardship contract on, with the Plumas on the 1,500 acres. And we took care of that land for 10 years using the TEK. And the one lesson that we really got out of that was we needed our own land to do the TEK on. Because at the end of the 10 years, we were out of there, you know, that was it. You can't do any more. You did what you said you were gonna do. You know, we had an oak savanna area, willow management area, maple area, beargrass area, um, all these different plants that we were nurturing. And we did like fire, fire safe thinning along the highway because this land has a state highway went through it. It had, um, a county road in it. It had a dump transfer site. It had a campground. It had a gun range. It had a lot of OHV damage, you know, and in 10 years, we were able to reverse a lot of the damage that was done in the area and, and bring the plants and the animals back and be able to demonstrate how the TEK can do that. And I think we educated a lot of Forest Service personnel and the TEK and, and change some minds on stewardship contracting because now stewardship contracting is a normal every day where before that was a pilot. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, is, so in terms of strategies and tactics, what I'm hearing is unity, speaking with one voice is very powerful. What else makes the powers that be say, okay, you can have Humbug Valley. Oh, well, we had to jump through a lot of hoops to get Humbug Valley back. You know, we applied for, um, we started out, there were 30 parcels available in our area. And we started out, well, we wrote a land management plan in 2007. You know, we wanted all 30. And we get just, well, that's too much. You don't have the capacity to take care of it. You know, you need to cut it down. and even our attorneys were saying, yeah, you need to make it workable, you know, so we cut it down to 17 parcels. And then, and, the, and we wrote another land management plan in 2010. And then finally, 2013, the Stewardship Council, which was set up by PG&E to, to give this land away because they had 71,000 acres to give away of excess land under this bankruptcy uh, settlement agreement. And, and so they, they said, you know, um, 
we're, we're going to give you Humbug Valley. But we had to fight for it because there were other people who had applied for it too. And what we did is we started having meetings with the other organization, well, it was a government agency that wanted the land. And started having meetings and just told them, you know, we really need to have the deed to the land. You know, we'll work with you, we'll do th um, things with you. You could even be a conservation easement holder, but we want to have the deed to the land. We want to have the land, know the land is ours and that we can do this TEK and it'll be there forever for us to be able to demonstrate on the way to take care of the land the right way. And so finally they agreed it, it was the California Fish and Wildlife and they finally in one of their meetings and it still gets me chills to think of it when they said, we agree the Maidu should have ownership of the land, you know, so. And so that was the, the big stumbling block. And once we got past that, you know, then this, we had to show compassion. We had to it. We had to incorporate as a nonprofit to be eligible, because to be eligible to go after this land, you had to be a government entity, such as a county or Forest Service or BLM or Park Service or some kind of government entity, a land trust or conserv um, conservation. Uh, agency or a, a tribe, a recognized tribe. And where we were, um, we had members that were not recognized. We only had two federally recognized tribes as members of our consortium. Oh. We incorporated as a 501c3 as a nonprofit in order to be eligible because you could be a, an environmental nonprofit and apply for the land. And so that's the way we went. We had to do that. But then the, they were saying, well, what do we know of your capacity? You're a new organization. <laughs> You're just starting. Even though our organizations have been around hundreds of years, some of them, you know, <laughs> our tribe. Um, so we had to show each of our um, nine members had to write up, you know, of how, what land they had, how they took care of their land, what projects, you know, we wrote about our TEK camp that we had at our Indian Education Center Roundhouse Council wrote about their TEK camp they'd been having for over 20 years with the kids. You know, we wrote about our Maidu stewardship project that we did, the pilot stewardship project. Uh, Susanville did own land that they had purchased and they wrote about their projects on their land, their Cradle Valley that they own and stuff. And, and you know, to show that we did have experience taking care of the land, we had to prove to them that we had experience taking care of this land. Um, uh, a lot of this sounds like attorneys are involved. Do you have any legal background or did you just learn in the process? We got attorneys, we got a grant for funding for legal services and had attorneys out of the Bay Area that were that this handle this Native American land transactions. And and they've been helping us the whole way of getting, and we got Humbug Valley and then five parcels around Lake Almanor too. And we've down to this one parcel we haven't got the deed to yet. We're still working on it. We have the other four parcels around Lake Almanor. We got two of the deeds last year. Um, two of the parcels we got this year, we just got this last month. And 
and now we're just down to one more parcel by Lake Eleanor. But we we handpicked these parcels because mainly they have burials on them or they have sites on them. You know, either uh, plant gathering sites that are real good or um, some kind of sacred site on them. And and so you know we stuck to that. These are the ones we absolutely have to have. You know that we can't give up. And, and so, what what kind of work have you done other than this that prepared you? What what's your educational background, work background? Um, well, we've had a lot of our people. You know, our kids. Um, we have some that have gone to college while well, they're in their 40s, 50s now. Um, they have the education to, to really lead the way. There were three of us on our board that are over 70, but the, the rest of them are younger. And um, like me, I was a bookkeeper for 30 years for, for our Indian nonprofits, you know, so um, I have the bookkeeping experience that we needed for doing a lot of this. We had others that had um, proposal writing experience or have environmental experience. You know, we have our our um, members that have gone through monitoring, you know, where they can do monitor. They've gone through these trainings for being able to monitor on different sites and um, and our younger kids, like my, I just had two grandsons graduate this last year, but graduate college this last year, you know, they're coming up and ready to go to work. <laughs> Good. Um, I, I did another show with a Chico State professor who has um, Native American background. He's in geography and he, he talks about learning from Native American practices like controlled burning, and as you say, pruning. So I'm wondering if, if you were giving advice to the Forest Service about how to prevent the campfire of 2018 and the other huge fires mm -hmm. that um, Trump blamed on not sweeping the forests. <laughs> what, 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 could they, what should they learn from indigenous practices? Um, that fire can be a friend, you know. Um, a lot of our TEK involves burning, involves fire, you know, keeping the forest clean. Um, when the explorers first came through here in the early 1800s, they would write in their journal about how park-like and open the forests were, uh, how they could ride their horse three abreast going through the forest, wow. that they were clean. And they weren't that way naturally. They were that way because we kept them that way. You know, when there was stuff that needed to be cleaned that would stop you from moving through the forest or the animals from moving through or that would stop the plants on the forest floor from growing, we would burn it or get rid of it, you know. Um, and, you know, we didn't suppress wildfires, but the wildfires wouldn't get big because there wouldn't be that much fuel as there is now in the forest. The, the I, Smokey the Bear was the worst thing that happened to the forest, I think, because they, they started putting out all the forest fires 
And some of those forest fires, if they were just burning on the can on the forest floor and not burning the canopies, they they were cleaning up the forest. They weren't hurting it. And and we used to do that, you know. I had a great great grandfather that was a burner. That was his job, you know, was burning. And he would go through the forest. And if you saw something that needed to be burned, he'd burn it, you know. And it didn't matter to time of year or anything because it would just be one little thing and it would burn and then it'd go out you know it would you had that relationship with the fire that it would just burn what you needed to be burned and um but his family would always they tell the story in my family about how they would always know where he was because he would go over the hill walk over the hill to go visit family in the other valley but they would see these little columns of smoke coming up as he went up the hill, they would see little columns of smoke. And then in a couple of weeks when he came home, they would see little columns of smoke coming down the hill. They would know he was coming home. <laughs> they knew he was out there doing his job. He was burning as he went through the forest. And we kept them open and clean that way. So the first thing they need to do is reduce the canopy, you know, open them up so that the sun can get to the forest floor so it can grow those plants, you know, the, the plants that we need, that the animals need to survive. Because everyone knows those new shoots, new plants are more nutritious for you and better for you than, than the older ones. And so, so are the oak trees kind of permeable? I mean, they're, they're impermeable to fire? They're used to it as indigenous trees? They are, they come back a lot better after a fire. They, they stand up better in a fire. And if you go out to a burned area, they're the first trees to come back. And, and you know, and as we're doing restoration, we're learning a lot on doing metal restoration, creek restoration, forest restoration, um, and bringing these plants and the animals back and stuff a, a big part is opening it up and making the foods available for them you know the bring and humbug and tasman koyam we want to uh reintroduce the beaver and the porcupines and get that balance back to the land you know our predators we need our predators out there the mountain um, lions and bears yeah you need the the wolves even you know you need to have that balance to in order uh 1990s we had so many deer they were starving to death you know because they were letting people kill the mountain lions and once they stopped that then the deer herds went down and the deer weren't starving and then the, there was plants enough for all of them <laughs> and um you've got to have a balance in there between them hmm so Trump was right in a way. It, it it's not about raking, but it's about management in terms of burning and pruning and whatever. <laughs> right. You mentioned raking in our stewardship project. The Forest Service just would stand there and shake their head. You know they couldn't believe we had guys out there raking around plants and stuff as we were out there cutting timber and thinning we we had them raking around the plants we were trying to protect you know and it's like you can't make money <laughs> paying guys to rake <laughs> but the idea was not the money it was the the plant was important you know <laughs> and, 
do you intend to have people settle in in the lands that you're stewarding or not? No, that's part of the agreement with the PG&E for taking the lands over is there, um, there won't be any residences, you know, there. Um, Tasman Koyam has a, a campground. We do campground improvements there and we'll have trails, nature trails and stuff. But it's, like I said, it's going to be like a park. There'll be a visitor center and uh, camping stuff. But we want to get people there, you know, to come there and then to um, get out of their vehicles and get out on the land and visit with the plants and the animals and be, be out. Out, outdoors and <laughs> out on the land because that's what the land needs. It thrives on the people being there. You know, that's why wilderness areas we have a hard time with because it, you need to have the people there too. It's a symbiotic relationship where they appreciate each other when it's in balance. Yeah. What are you finding in terms of young people's like teenagers awareness and interest in these kind of keeping traditional practices yeah um well in our area we do because they live here you know they live out in the woods and uh, plumas county itself only has twenty thousand people in the whole county you know and that's what in 1800 there were twenty thousand mountain maidu here before the uh, europeans came by 1860, it was down to 2000. And then 2004 Indian census, there was 287, something like that uh, on the census. Um, so, you know, we were almost <laughs> extinct ourselves, <laughs> but um, we're coming back. We're up to a couple thousand now. Um, but, uh, you know, we're real rural. And so in our area, our kids grow up in the woods. Um, Roundhouse Council is our Indian Education Center is one of our members, they're a nonprofit also, but they've had an Indian Education Center in Greenville since um, the 1978, I think is when they first opened. Um, but since the 80s, we've had TEK camps for the kids in the summertime where we've taken them out. We, started calling them cultural camps. And then when TEK became kind of the word to use, uh, we changed it to TEK a few years ago. But, um, and it's just taking the kids out, you know, and camping in, in the forest and teaching them all the traditional things. And, and so they grow up with it. Uh, my kids went through the camps, you know, now my grandkids are going to them. And, and so um, it's something, you know, that is just, I don't know. I, like I said, all the government policies forever have failed because they've tried to separate the Indians from their land and their heritage and culture, and they can't do it because we're so tied together that you always go home, you know. Um, they always go back to the land. And I think our kids do that. And Are there jobs for the kids when they... There are jobs, you know, and and when we have volunteers come and help and people come and help, you know, we have families. They bring families and they bring two, three generations and they they work together on the land and and do things together so that the young ones learn. Um, we had a field camp last fall in Tasman Koyam uh, where we put in 
as a few of these uh, beaver dams, the uh, ABDs, they're an analog beaver dam. They mimic the beaver dams. Hmm. And it's to make the water go back out onto the meadow. So we, you build these dams in the creek so that the water spreads out, gets thick and spreads out into the meadow. And then the meadows hold that water till later in the year before releasing it. So our meadows can hold as much water as a reservoir if you you get the water out into them and and so we've had them building dams but there were whole families out there you know grandparents and kids and grandkids and out there working just helping and um we did like plant re-releases where we took our elderberry bushes and you cut every all the little pine trees and all the little stuff for 30 feet around them so that we released it so the sun could get to the the berry bushes that, that we used the elderberry and and then we took those little trees and stuff that we'd cut and used them in the dams to build the dams in the creeks because you just drive poles into the ground and then weave the trees back and forth on those poles going across the creek and it just mimics what the beavers do when we get the beavers to come back, which we're hoping they'll do now that we've got a few ponds in there, uh, they can finish them up for us. <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, are the, is anyone teaching Maidu language so the kids learn? Yeah, they do teach, you know, Susanville Rancheria had a program, had an ANA grant for a few years and did the, my do language and have it on CDs and have lessons and stuff. But Roundhouse Council, the Indian Education Center, teaches my do language classes to the kids. We have quite a few kids getting pretty fluent in in my do now. And and you know, I think we caught it. You know, at the time when we still had elders, fluent speakers that really helped. You know, they put they put the language onto these uh, cards and then they put them on the cassette tapes and then they now they have them on dvds and cds and and stuff you know they have the language on them so that we can use them for teaching what what about the knowledge of the um medicine men and shamans that all the the spiritual healing knowledge is that being preserved um, you know that runs more in the families and that's a more personal thing that uh, we don't get involved with through our organization because you know we feel that to, if you're going to be a medicine man you know you know it <laughs> and you learn it but uh, we don't get involved in in that um, you know families uh, you've talked to most of the families in the area they'll tell you somebody in their family that was a, a shaman at one time or a medicine man you know one of their ancestors and stuff and and they'll tell you about well this person learned how learned that knowledge you know and they they're teaching their kids you know but um it's not that's not something that you go around bragging about it. You know, you don't brag about something like that and that you could do it or you know it. And it just, it's something that if you're gonna be a medicine man, you'll be one and, and people make allowances for that. But it helps to have a teacher. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. 
and most, uh, you know, you get to, especially when you get to my age, because I'll be 75 this year, you get to that point where you feel like you need to pass on, you need to teach. And, and the medicine men are the same way, you know, they need to, to pass it on to somebody and they'll do it. And they choose somebody and work with them. And, mm. um, so you would like, as your next goals to add one more parcel around Lake Almanor, what other are your goals for the near future? Okay, um, well, just taking care of this land now that we have it, just 3,000 acres, we need to <laughs> take care of it. You know, we're working on um, fundraising for the different projects. Um, we have an office in Chester. Um, we working on funding for it. We just hired a new executive director, uh, Trina Cunningham, as a interim direct executive director, and and so um, you know just getting out because last year was our first year of really being out in Tasman and working out there, and we got the campground open before the COVID shut us down um but it took a lot of work we had to do repairs you know the well had to be repaired there were pipes that had to be repaired a lot of the raking and hazard trees and stuff to get it going um we got a grant for um enhancement the campground enhancement you know for working because we want to put in flush toilets and showers because it just has a vault toilet there and we want to we want to be able to bring groups in there. We want a little amphitheater, a little um, kitchen cooking area. Um, it would be nice to have toilets that that recycle and are right. water based. Yeah, and you know we want to have trails where people can park and then they can get out and walk and on the trails, you know, not ride OHVs around all over the meadow or anything, and and get them out walking. Um, there's an old line shack in the middle of the valley that's almost ready to fall down that we want to rehab and turn into a visitor center. Hmm. One of the parcels at Lake Almanor, we want to do a cultural center there. We, our conservation easement, we have conservation easements on all this land. Um, Better River Land Trust is a conservation easement holder on them. Um, uh, we, but we want to do a cultural center that's going to have a museum, have a curation center, uh, have classrooms, have offices, um, crew quarters, maintenance building, um, have a nursery greenhouse area for our native plants. And then on that, that's 164 acres, we'll have trails too, that, because there's a meadow with the, a pond in it up in the area, in, on that parcel to go through and but first we have to do a timber sale to open up that canopy we have to do a thinning job to to make it fire safe because it is real laden with fuels on the forest floor um, once we get that done then we can uh, see about putting up a cultural center there but it's right on highway 89 where it's real accessible year round where Humbug Valley is only accessible in the summer. It has too much snow to, they don't plow the roads. It's eight miles south of Lake Almanor on dirt roads. So 
uh, the roads aren't open in the winter time. It, snowmobiles can get in there as well in the winter time. So if if the secret of your success, which is really amazing success, is have good lawyers, have unity, apply for grants, persist. Persist. I, I mean, every year I would go to stewardship council board of directors meetings at least twice a year saying we want land <laughs> you know and just stay in our face and you know we're not going away and and stuck it out you know from 2003 was the first meeting until 2013 they said they were going to give us humbug and we finally got the deed in 2019 <laughs> um, and we're still working on the other deeds but we've got the motto is squeaky wheels get oiled right <laughs> but you know we we've stuck it out um, we've lost members along the way and um you know we're doing it for them too <laughs> absolutely so, um could you say a word about the drum behind you the is that an owl on the drum no that's a wolf <laughs> it's it's not a drum, it's just a medallion. Ah. It's hanging on the wall. It's, it's beautiful. Um, if someone wants to give to the 5013C, how, what's the best way they could make a donation? The, the best way is go to our website and it's mydosummit.org. And there, there's a, a place there to join the Friends of Maidu Summit Consortium of MSC. Friends, it's called Friends of MSC. And when we first started out, we had Friends of Humbug Valley, but then we've got other parcels too, not just Humbug. So we changed it to Friends of MSC. And it, we're a 501c3, so it's tax deductible donations. Is there anything else that we haven't mentioned that that would be useful to people to know? No, I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot. <laughs> okay. Um, Just keep tuned and plan on coming to visit. 